Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. So Easter is a 50-day celebration. You want to know why? Because you have to fast longer than you thought. You fast for 40 days, but it's harder than 40. That's the way this works. And that's exactly how um, the church planned it. And, and isn't it interesting that it starts Easter is at the beginning, found at the beginning. So Lent starts at the longest day of the year. The darkest day of the year is the beginning of Lent. And then when Easter comes, it's the beginning of spring. Everything's coming to life. So for 50 days, we celebrate what it means for resurrection. Because the beauty of resurrection is, if you think resurrection is, and Easter is only about looking back at a historical event that happened when Jesus got out of the tomb, we're missing the point. Paul says, you were all raised. As if you don't need enough demonstration of that, look at Luke's gospel, which is really weird. It's that whole thing that mentions all the other people coming out of the grave. Yeah, yeah, we don't teach that at our church, but anyway. But it's an interesting thing. Read it sometime. All these other people keep walking out of the grave, and they come and run around in Jerusalem. I, I figure that they probably, like, his grandma's there, and they wanted Jesus to come. Let's go see if the watering hole's still there, you know. Um, and so... There's, but there's this symbolism that's all through um, the story of resurrection where it's not just about Jesus, it's about all of us. And so we're going to be um, looking, and we have been looking at the major movements of the Gospel of John. Now, the thing you have to remember about the Gospel of John is he's retelling the Genesis story. John, almost 100 years after Jesus, um, they, they say like 90 A.D., um, so the, the, the church has been in function for about 50 years um, in Ephesus. Out of Ephesus comes this gospel of John, and he writes it totally different than everybody else. He's not a synoptic. He doesn't care about chronological order. He doesn't care about what uh, the, the details. He doesn't talk the way they all talk because he's retelling the creation. And that's why he starts at the beginning of John with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. 
And how does Genesis start? In the beginning, God created. He's retelling the creation story. And so he does this with this movement to happen. We're going to today look at a really interesting middle movement. So the, the major movement, and if you, if you can, use the visual phrases of God and technique. Okay? So we've talked about the, the John 1, the Logos. We've talked about the wedding in Cana. We've talked about uh, Nicodemus. Those are the dots. The next major dot is the, is the woman at the well, the Samaritan story. But today we're going to look at the in-between, the line that connects the dots. Everybody get the picture? So um, I'd like to start, though, with this statement, and it might be the most important statement that can't say all day. The only thing that separates you from God is the thought that you could be separated from him. The only thing that can separate you from God is the thought that you could be separated. Does that make sense? I don't think we understand the weight of that. But if we believe the gospel is true, what does Paul say? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. It's not the height nor the depth nor the power, the power of or any other kind of presence that can come from the love of God. So the only thing that can separate you from God is the in-between So I guess you could kind of suggest that the reality that you live in is based on what reality you want. And if you want to choose to reject love, and if you want to choose to reject grace, and if you want to shame yourself, and if you want to live in that state, it's not that God puts that on you, because he would never do that. He can't separate himself. It's impossible. But you can choose not to. And I'm not talking about people getting saved or not saved. Some of the most heaven-living people I've ever met don't go to church. That's just the reality. And so what we have to understand is this idea of, of choosing to be somebody who lives in grace and giving, choosing to be somebody who lives in the full embrace. It's almost like the roadmap is already there. The tracks are already laid. You can either get on the train or off the train. It's just that way. You can live in the flow is all around us. The challenge is I was raised in an environment that I was taught I had to push the river. It was about what I did to make that happen. So it was about how holy I was. How sinless. Maybe that's, honestly, we talk holy, but it was probably more sinless is what you could say. Wasn't it? It wasn't about a positive attitude. It was about the absence of a negative attitude. And so what I'd like to suggest is if we look at this, it, it reminds me of what it says at the beginning of the song, that if you sit in the seat of the scorner, 
if you choose to be a judging person, if you choose to be a shaming person, if you choose to be somebody who labels other people, you will live with that internally as well as externally. And so the beauty of this is it is all grace. And I would really like to suggest that when you come to If I'm honest with you, I really hesitated to use this text because it is so loaded with baggage. I love the scriptures, right? I, I, I love the scriptures. I love the text. But the reality is so many of the, 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 the scriptures that we know the best and we've heard quoted the most are so loaded with baggage that by the time you actually read it, you've already got preconceived ideas about what all of it means. Right? That's just the way it works. It's the way our mind works because we work with attachments. And so if you heard some, and it's funny to me, oftentimes we won't even uh, uh, look back with a fond thought about the person that said all the stuff. It's like, well, I didn't read any of that scripture said. But if we ask them then how, what formed our thought about what that scripture is, well, when I was six years old, this guy that just telling everybody they were burning in hell uh, said this one thing. I don't think that's true. Isn't that weird? He repeats his stuff. And so this scripture is really interesting. In John chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses, um, Jesus is speaking here to Nicodemus. So this is Jesus' answer to Nicodemus, which we talked about Nicodemus' question last week. And just as Moses in the desert lifted up the brass replica of a snake on a pole for all people to see. Now that's not the exact saying. That is snakes on a pole. So that those who believe him should not perish, but be given eternal life. For this is how much God loved the world. He gave his, his one and only whom he accepted to give. So now everyone who believes him will never perish, but experience everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to judge what was in the world, but to be its savior and rescuer. Now, as I mentioned, this text is loaded with baggage, loaded with baggage. There's all kinds of big terms that, that we think we know what they mean based on um, maybe things we've heard before. So words like saved, that's a big word. Uh, words like eternal life, that's a big word. Words like believer or unbeliever, those are big words. And so immediately what we do, and we it's okay, God is, is, is so loving to us that we read our own thought back into the story. was not giving an altar call. In fact, if you actually want to read the text, Jesus never gave an altar call, ever. He never asked anybody to get saved. He just asked them to follow and be baptized. Jesus never let anybody in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just said, follow me, which in the rabbinical language it means, do what I do. It's just like that, right? And so when we see things like saved, we start immediately thinking exclusively, don't we? We put people in buckets. These people have prayed the prayer of the Romans wrote down. I've done it before. I've, I've, I've Romans wrote it. I think I've tried to count yesterday. I think I've actually gotten saved over 50 times. Has anybody in here ever gotten saved more than once? Have you done like one of those safety? Yeah, okay. Make sure I'm not alone. You've done one of the like safety net prayers. You know what I mean? Uh, if there, if there's, uh, you hear there's a tornado coming and you're like, just in case, you know, or, or whatever it might be. Um, so we've done that. Or I remember, especially when I was younger growing up, if the preacher preached a really hellfire message, nothing got me to rededicate, which is a strange word. We use that word, right? To rededicate. Nothing got me to rededicate my life back to Jesus more than fear. Fear is the most powerful short-term motivator in the universe. Notice the words I said. Short-term motivator. What is the most powerful long-term motivator? So, what you find is that all of these 
things when we read this mean all kinds of things already. And if we understand the context here, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is part of the Sadducees. Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. He's a religious teacher. And what the conversation's about is Nicodemus has asked Jesus and said, okay, can somebody go back into their mother's womb and be born again? We know that story. But we talked about last week that the context, it wasn't about being born again because do you realize the term born again didn't exist for another started using the term born again. So they were not talking about salvation. This is not what it meant. What they were talking about was inclusion. And the thing, according to the Old Testament, that allowed somebody to be part of God's chosen people was their blood. If you're born a Jew, part of Israel, you're part of God's chosen people. If you're outside of that, you're a heathen. I, I, I don't even need, you know this already. I don't even need to say, I'll go show you the text, do I? So what Jesus is actually saying is, because Nicodemus is coming to Jesus and said, wait a minute, you've been telling Samaritans they're in. You've been telling lepers they're in. You've been telling um, people caught in that adultery they're in. And you haven't just been telling them they're in. You've been throwing feasts and sitting at the table with them without giving the prerequisite that they need to change how they live before they feast with you. I, I was reading a rabbi the other day. His name, uh, Abraham Zakharov, is one of my favorites. And he actually suggested that the thing that got Jesus killed is human atheism. Because eating in that culture was an embrace of someone. When you ate with them, you were embracing them. And so both the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders both could not handle that Jesus was upending the culture. Jesus was saying women are in. Jesus was saying sinners are in. Jesus was saying lepers are in. He said everybody's in. And he showcases this by eating with them, feasting with them, partying with them. That's a weird language, but I don't know any other way to describe it. Partying. So Jesus would do that, and that's the thing that ticked everybody off. Because if there's one thing the world system hates, it's when the order of things get turned upside down. So Nicodemus and Jesus are having this conversation, and the question Nicodemus asks is, how could everybody else be in? Are they going to be go back into a mother's womb and be born with Jewish blood? The question is their blood. So Jesus and Nicodemus are discussing this, and Jesus gives this answer. Now, it's really an interesting thing because most of the language in this text are associated with something later. If we think about it, what happens is it ends up, we think, being a context of sorts. So we do the right thing now, and then when we die, we get a reward. Or we do the wrong thing now, and when we die, we get a punishment. That's not at all the conversation that they're having. They're having a conversation. What does Jesus say that we're supposed to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom, thy will be on So where is the kingdom supposed to be? supposed to be how we bring it down. So Jesus and Nicodemus are having this conversation, and Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about something that is really still a conversation we have today. Who's in and who's out? And what is interesting is Paul says quickly in Ephesians, he goes back to take what Jesus says and takes it to the nth degree, because what Paul says is all of humanity is already saved through the divine grace and wisdom of God's mercy. Everyone, all of humanity is already in because of this. Jesus don't like that. 
I do the right thing. I follow the rules, right? I, so it's like I study for the test and they don't study for the test and we all get A's? Well, that ain't right. Yeah, you know, we don't like that. But the reality of it is when we ask Jesus what the kingdom of God is like, what did he answer? He said it's like somebody who needed workers for the field. And they went and found somebody who would work for a certain day's wage and they asked him to work in the morning and you work all day and you get 100 bucks. But then they called somebody at noon and said, if you work all day, you get 100 bucks too. And then they called somebody who was only going to work for an hour, and they said, if you work all day, you get 100 bucks too. And we're sitting back here debating if somebody prays the sinner's prayer on their deathbed if they get to go to heaven or not. And he's saying, that's not the point. So what's interesting here is what is happening is there's this idea, because Paul goes on to say, you've already been seated with Christ. So the idea here is that the that the answer I found is is the problem has been solved from the foundation. Our foundational being was designed, created, and sealed with goodness. Jesus tells Nicodemus that all it takes for people to embrace the narrative is is to look upon him. Now, I think this is really interesting. Think about what that might mean. Is it possible that Jesus is saying, I have come to show all of humanity that the image of God, that, excuse me, that the image of God has been given to them in creation. So what he's actually saying is, if you look on me, you're going to see what God is like and what you are inherently like. Notice the language, and, and I'm not trying to picket fence here, but it is just interesting that um, Jesus says that whoever, he gave his one and only unique son as a gift, so now everyone who believes him, doesn't say believes in him. Jesus is simply coming on behalf of God saying, do you believe me? I'm showing you that God has always said, don't be afraid, do you believe me? I'm showing you that God, you in a perfect image as a gift to you. I'm showing you that it doesn't matter what you look like, where you were born, how perfect you are, how smart you are, what church you attend. Do you believe me? That's the question. But we don't like that question. So what ends up happening is Jesus was the divine demonstration of God with us. That's Emmanuel, right? What do we say? Emmanuel, God with us. And so is it possible that Jesus came as God with us because God has always been with us, but we didn't believe God? What did God say in the beginning? He created man and woman in his image then after he did, he speaks to our being and says, be very careful. Do you know how many people have lived their life and didn't ask this question? Never feel guilty. Never do anything. Never speak. Never say a bad So what Jesus ends up doing is creating in his demonstration this new way of, what's underlined there, seeing and being healed. Seeing and being healed. He says then, as if we have any question about what he's not here to do, I didn't come to condemn. But what do we think Jesus, in, in God, through Jesus, what do we think he's doing? anybody who's not part of our club, condemning them. He says, I didn't come to do any of that. All I came to do was change the way you see that healing. 
Jesus looks at us, but it's just, you know why? Because we're, we live in America in a day and age where it's not too good to be true. Probably are. But the reality is the Bible is good news. The gospel is good news. And for most of us, the gospel we've heard isn't good or news. It's just not that good. And so we're not comfortable with that. So what Jesus says is, I'm coming not to condemn anybody. I didn't come to draw lines of separation or unworthiness. He says, if you can see that I am God with everyone, then you can believe that God is with you and that God can't be separate from you. Excuse me. But this does take a seeing. He's coming to give you a new set of eyes. And over and over, he gives us a new set of eyes. Over and over. Over and over, he deals with our lenses. Maybe this is the great revolution we are being invited to as those that follow Jesus, which is a new set of eyes to see and be healed. God's freely given grace is a humiliation, though, to our ego because free gifts say nothing about being strong, superior, or normal. Grace is hard because grace goes directly against your ability to do something. It upends the system. Your ego, our ego, our ability teaches us about how I can be strong to do something. I can be disciplined enough to follow the rules. I can be better than these people because they don't know how to follow it like I do. Or because they're not normal in our group. See, we prefer uniformity to unity. Uniformity. Uniformity means if you come in and do this and this and this. See, the, 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 it presupposes when somebody walks in the door, you're separate from God. But if you are become like us, we can get you unseparated. When you begin with a false premise, guess what you end with? A false premise. You end at the bad, the bad spot if you start at the bad spot. And so what happens is Jesus came to do this. Now, interestingly enough, this is likely why the primary metaphor, did you realize that the primary metaphor for Jesus and the gospel for the first 500 years of the church was as a doctor or a healer, never as a judge or a Somebody is separate from God, you don't have that choice. They dealt with sin as their choice rather than helping them to be with God. We put on separation. But if you follow these rules, then maybe you can come off the hook. And so what begins to happen is the framework is always of Jesus in the early church. A hospital is never a courtroom, but we like the courtroom. We love the courtroom. Why? Because God was the judge. Jesus is our lawyer. We, that we're going to be given the directives, and, and we can follow this and this and this, and then God lets us off. And we really like the fact that the next guy who's not willing to follow the same hoops that I am, he gets the penalty. Like, yeah, just let him have it. He didn't work. I've been praying for 30 years. Jesus, take it. Right? We do that, don't we? It's the worst. It's the worst. So then it goes further. Because in its original context, that goes back to just a human context. I can't help it. Um, Yay. Uh, So the, the context here is two. Just as, okay, so he's telling a story from something else we haven't been telling you. Isn't it interesting to me that in this context, Jesus is saying, this is what my rescue is like. And Jesus tells this story about the serpents that have invited the Israelites to the desert. And Moses says in that story that the symbol of their pain and death would be actually the symbol that healed them when they looked at it. The snake that was killing them became.
trying to communicate to us. But until we receive the gospel on a cellular level, our unhealed mind processes reality in some form of inward circumstance. We are quid pro quo by nature. I do, so I get. I don't do, so I don't get. We love church. We love the idea that somebody gets what we want. And so what happened, and I'm not saying that's acceptable, I'm just saying that's the way we're built. And so we end up being this, this group of people who don't really know how to process that it is something that's just good. And what's interesting to me is as a result, people spend more time fearing and trying to control God. Let me say this again. People spend more time fearing and trying to control God than actually loving God. In fact, we do not really know how to love God apart from trust, surrender, and vulnerability. So we spend more time either fearing God, that I need to do the right thing or else, or trying to control God. God, you need to do this because I did this. Anybody ever pray those prayers? Where you just try to get enough faith and you put enough scriptures on Patrick and God has to do something? Magic Jesus, I just need to know the right spell, then God has to move. God's freely given grace is a humiliation to the ego because the ego said nothing about either cost, pure, or moral. The ego does not know how to receive things freely or without logic, I should say, because you have to think. The ego does not know how to receive things freely or without logic. Anybody ever given you something for free and you're waiting on the other shoe to drop? Right? You're waiting on, okay, there's strings attached here somewhere. I was talking to mom this morning about the car. We've started tithing to the city. And I've been trying to do this for like six months to a year. And every time I talk to my mayor about it, and we love Mayor Baker, he's wonderful. But every time I talk to him, he, he won't give me any specificity because he keeps thinking, why would you just randomly give me money? Because what I've said is we want to tithe to the city, and it just put it wherever it needs to go to help whoever needs help. We don't even want to know where you put it. No scriptures backing that. And so he's, he's what he's assuming, because this is how our world works, that at some point I'm going to call him a favor. Right? At some point, you know, he's, he's assuming that I'm pastor, and so what that means is that I'm going to want us to open every city council meeting with, you know, the sinner's prayer. Right? And, it, and that's because that's the way the world works. The challenge is that's not the way God works, and we can't process that. We just can't process that God is absolutely freely giving grace. Ego doesn't know how to receive things freely. It likes to be worthy and needs to understand in order to accept things as true. It likes to be worthy. We like to think we're worthy and then deserving of something. So we live in cycles of worthiness, deserving of God's love or shame which we are freely willing to embrace when we feel that we've fallen short of it. Because in some way that becomes our pinnacle. The ego prefers a worldview of scarcity or quid pro quo. We don't even have time to get into what a worldview of scarcity means. But essentially, if you don't believe there's enough grace for everybody, then you don't believe in a God of abundance. It's as simple as that. Where only the clever, the talented, or here's our big one, the thriving thrive. We like we like that, don't we? For some of us, it was holy. For some of us, there was certainly holy Jesus, right? So what happens is this idea of inclusion, this idea of a God that gives grace to all. The problem and its overcoming is at the very central center, excuse me, of the gospel process. It has always been overcome from God's side. It's always been dealt with from his side of the equation. The only problem is 
nothing on the side. Grace is always given freely to all without exception. Everyone. All. Even the ones that are trusting. God's inclusion of us reveals God's humility, his graciousness, and his love. I have to say that again because we don't believe it. God's inclusion of everyone reveals his humility. We don't like God's humility. We like to have our prayers. How many times have our, uh, have our prayers begun with almighty God? How many of our prayers begin with almighty God? Really? Would God ask you to be something he's not? The God wants free and willing partners. An economy of merit cannot process free or uh, um, uh, God in, in an economy that we have where we have to have merit cannot process free love or free anything. Jesus actually says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. That's the gospel. Yet to this day, most Christians simply prefer being Jesus say? I no longer call you servants. That's what he says. Actually, friends of God is something found in the second book of the Bible. Yet thousands of years later, Jesus comes along and we still didn't believe it. Because we like servants. We like to be the servant of God where God's God is almighty, able to lowly servant, and we do this and this and this, and then God moves to say, I'm serving him less. God is relational. Everything about God is relational. Friendship is relational. Servitude is an improvement. It's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the end of it. You want to know what the end of wisdom is? Love, because perfect love out fear. He's very comfortable with us coming in with the box of fear because he knows that's who we are. And I'm not saying he wants us to be afraid. He's just willing to overcome that if we're with it. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's how we come in because we don't understand. We've been told all these things. God's this almighty beast with the big long white beard with the uh, thunder rolls. But then ultimately, if you're still in fear of God mode after 20 years of relationship, you're a servant, not a friend. I mean, it's just that simple. He wants to bring us into a, a relationship where we understand there's nothing to be afraid of. Do you realize that every single instance of God showing on the scene in the Old and New Testament line of logos is don't be afraid? Fear not. Every time. Why? Because he is. He wouldn't keep saying it if we weren't scared. Every time. He says, don't be afraid more times than anyone else in the time. Twice. So the relationship between law and grace is a central issue for almost anyone involved in religion. Basically, this is the greatest tension between religion as a requirement and religion as a transformation. Religion is transaction where you do and get, and religion is transformation where you develop and grow. And what happens is it's this tension where God's favor is we come into it thinking it's based on principle, law. We like law. We like law. We like rules. It gets us structure. It gets us boundaries. You know, do this, do this, do this. I know how often I need to read my Bible. I know. I remember repenting if I didn't read my Bible enough. Like if I forgot to read my Bible at the beginning and the end of the day, I would repent before I would go to bed, lest he come like a thief in the night. Right? That's rules, folks. That's called legalism. And Paul says something radical in Galatians uh, 3 and uh, 28 and 29. Galatians.
this is 313 that I've never seen before. Paul looks at the law and he says, the law is cursed. The law is just code language for religious rules. The law is code language for our belief system so that God would hear your prayer and make your name famous
what Jesus was sacrificing. Listen to me, worship leaders. Listen to the words of our Lord. Don't ever think that what is important is just what you got out of this whole evangelical experience. Listen, you get a heart Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the beauty of your grace. We thank you for the the radical inclusivity of the gospel. We thank you for the radical love that you give to all. And we thank you that in the grace of your love, your mercy, your kindness, your grace, there is no need for us to defend you. You do not need our defending. You do not need our uh, explanation. You do not need us to, to be those that look for an argument where we can prove who you are. You are very competent at bringing forth your arguments through Christ. God, we ask you that you would allow the kindness to be shown to us that as the scripture says, goodness and kindness of God will fall upon those who know him. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.